Welcome to The Underlay, a Clever Choice podcast, where we go inside and under the flooring industry. Welcome to The Underlay, a Clever Choice podcast, and we have now made episode seven. And with me, as always, is the GM of Clever Choice. Michael Roberts, how are you, mate? Yeah, very well, Matt. Uh, no injuries or illness, and um, you've just come back from holidays. I have. I've had a holiday, and which was nice. Been in Bali for about 11 days. Came back unscathed. Uh, the ugly Australian survives. <laughs> and there were plenty of us over there in uh, Bali, that's for sure. But it's good to be home. It's always oh, good to be home. Sure is. Uh, and look, joining us today, we've got a special guest, which is Amazing, as always. Uh, Rowan Hodge, the CEO of Anderson's Flooring. How are you, mate? I'm very well, thanks, gentlemen. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks it's great. For having me. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us in the panic room. And uh, we're going to put you under the microscope. Well, I hope there's not too much panic in the room. I'm, hopefully our industry does better when we're not in a panic, but uh, I like the idea of the underlay. Yes. I think it's a, uh, it's a nice idea that you guys have initiated at Clever Choice. Yep. Um, opportunity to talk about the industry somewhat inside the industry, but I think there could there could be quite a few of the topics that are interesting to the public as well. Yeah, and that's, um, I guess, from the feedback from our first six episodes, um, you know, that's sort of what we're getting, that, you know, we're stepping outside of the norm and, you know, just trying to bring in business partners like yourself. Um, we've had a um, ad for on, we've had our staff, so, yeah, really just trying to, to mix it up. Well, I guess the more people learn, the the more comfortable they are with the industry and, you know, we don't want, there's no secrets. That's what we want. We want it to be uh, an open and honest discussion. And uh, today, it's, I guess, with Rowan, Anderson's is a Australian institution, mate, over 50 years and it is it's over an, 50 stores. and That's right. It's an iconic, iconic business. And I think the, one of the really interesting things about Anderson's is that where we began as a business uh, in the Lockyer Valley is, is still where we're headquartered, you know, where we're surrounded by vegetable farms and uh, all of our staff in the head office are all locals. They're all, they've all grown up in the area. And there's a certain, there's a certain element of that uh, that keeps us very grounded as a, as a country town organisation. And I think that, I, I hope, that, that will continue to be true as we grow, as we continue to expand uh, around the rest of Australia. It's definitely been a part of the success recipe for us as an organisation to date. It's funny because I'm a, I'm relatively new to the Gold Coast. I've been here seven years now. Actually, it was seven years, eight days ago. So I find there's this myth about country towns and the Gold Coast is just seen as the biggest country town in Australia. And a lot of people s- tend to see that as a negative. But I think the in your in your industry and in, I guess in, in with small business and essentially you're just a bigger small business your birth in the Lockyer Valley is something to be proud of and to embrace absolutely and look what well, I think we lean we lean into that pretty hard um, we don't do a lot of it in our public messaging so in our in our marketing uh, doesn't speak to that quite so much and that's for different reasons you know regarding meeting the customer where they are but I think when we're talking about the really important parts of our DNA uh, in our internal communications, in our training, in our customer service, in our franchisee surveys, we do we do begin and end that conversation on country town values. I think there's an interesting element to that 
is that we don't need to define them to know them. So, uh, you know, if we were asked to list off what are country town values, we could probably brainstorm some things together and there'd be some things there that make, make sense and we might agree around those. But fundamentally, I think the power of country town values as a, as a culture and as an ethic is that you know it when you see it. Mm. So if we have a, a customer interaction and it, it goes well or it goes badly, we're often able to say, well, did you apply country town values to that situation? And if you did, what would you do differently? And so without defining it at all, it's actually incredibly powerful because people can absolutely relate to that and they can say, oh, yeah, well, actually, I could have, I could have gone the extra mile. I could, have, I could have tried harder. I could have treated that customer like my best friend's mum, which is a, a saying our founder was very fond of. And, and that's actually a nice little uh, segue there because you talk about family business, you talk about country town values. Your surname's not Anderson. No, it's not. So I'm, I'm only the third uh, uh, CEO at the helm. Well, fourth if you include Jack's dad. So Jack Anderson we, we would regard as our, uh, I suppose he's like the, the iconic um, uh, founder, operator. Um, he's, he's our Colonel Sanders in a way. Yeah. You know, he's he's the, the core of our original identity. And, um, and Jack's still uh, uh, in touch with our network today and, and is in retirement, but is, um, is still important to us as our founder still. Uh, his father began Anderson's as a furniture uh, operation in the Lockyer Valley that also sold floor coverings. And, you know, that was some 60-odd years ago. Um, Jack had the vision to sort of say, well, I could, I could take that flooring business, uh, make it a specialist and really make something of it. And he, uh, he backed himself and he did an incredible job uh, in Gatton first and then in Toowoomba. And then shortly after that, he began to expand the business further uh, using, you know, friends and associates in what would later be called franchises. So, um, you know, we've got to remember this This was such a long time ago. Franchising was a reasonably new concept in Australia at the time. Yeah. Um, and so he, he was a pioneer in this industry, a pioneer in, in Queensland flooring, and very quickly expanded the, the business out over the first sort of 30 years um, to be a, a really dominant player in the market and a very respected name in floor coverings, which is a, a trademark we still trade in today. It's um, something that I can sort of vouch for um, meeting Jack for the very first time. So, um, you know, I bleed blue, as we've discussed in previous podcasts and always heard about that Queensland culture or um, all that up here and didn't really understand it. And I remember the first time I came to Queensland and started with Clever, um, met Jack for the first time out at uh, Morayfield. He had a little office, you know, in the back of a shop still, you know, had this empire, but was still in a shop working out of the Moray store. And um, Simon sort of took me up to introduce me to Jack. And I just remember he brought me in and was in my business career, probably the first person that actually took the time to sit down and actually get to know who I was. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, that, that stuck with me and that's something that now I bring into our business that, you know, I really want to get to know the people I'm dealing with, um, what drives them. Um, and he really, you know, really left a, a, a mark on, on my experience in the flooring industry. And I think from there, it's also made clever, really connect with Anderson's and, 
um, you know, our core values have got a lot of synergies because of Jack and because of what he gave me that very early stage of Clever's um, involvement with Anderson's. And then I remember the first time I met you up in um, Gadden, you did the exact same thing. You, you know, brought us in, asked us from, you know, probably not more as a personal, but from Clever's point of view, what we wanted out of our relationship with Anderson's. And, um, you know, that was very touching to have one of our major clients. The first interaction was to ask us what we wanted out of the relationship. Most of the supply customer um, conversations is about what you want out of us. But, you know, I do, I do remember our first conversation was about, you know, what we wanted out of, out of you. And, um, you know, that also, you know, built our relationship on a, um, a very good path uh, because you built that respect with me from the very get-go. And I think when you talk about country values, you know, communication uh, is definitely up there on the key, the way you communicate and talk to your clients, uh, suppliers, and obviously that then extends to your customers. Well, I, I didn't know in that first meeting, in my defence, I didn't know you were a cockroach. I, I probably, you know... <laughs> Would have, I, I would have and should have given you a much harsh, much more harsh ride. Um, but look, I think all jokes aside, um, the the fact that we're still Queensland headquartered and still in the Lockyer Valley, you know, that that does influence very much our um, uh, keeps us grounded. But I think the the important thing is that just like Jack demonstrated, you know, he he achieved a business at significant scale, and he did that not by being a Queenslander, he did it by, by being a really good retailer, wholesaler, by meeting the customer where they were and by doing it with country town values as, as sort of the secret weapon. I like to think that translates anywhere. I think it would translate internationally. I think it'll definitely translate and we see it translating as we expand into other states in Australia. And um, so while we are a Queensland genesis, um, I don't believe that's our limit. I think it's a strength. And I think that, uh, but I think the the trading in being a Queenslander is not really our brand. Uh, when we trade in um, the ACT, it will be much more about the values we bring to that transaction with a customer. And uh, I'm thrilled to hear the experience you had when we first met. Yep. Um, but I, I hope that's the experience that our customers have when they deal with our franchisee in um, Wagga. When uh, Dave and Angela, our local owners down there. Uh, greet a customer, they happen to be in a country town, but they're getting an Anderson service standard that is the same as the one in Gladesville in Sydney. It's the same as the one that we have in, in Stafford in Brisbane, and it's the same as Cairns in far north Queensland when Colin and Carly are, are serving their customers in that market. So I, I do think it translates very well. Um, I think uh, it's interesting to hear the story you have about meeting Jack for the first time. Um, you know, he's a really iconic identity in our organisation, but he's also quite an iconic identity in the industry. Mm. And um, uh, that very personal approach he took, together with uh, an attitude he had around really getting down in the trenches with his franchisees, um, is still uh, language we use today because it was such an indelible impression upon uh, the team, many of whom are still there from Jack, from Jack's days. Yeah, I think that it's... I, I, for, for too many businesses... It becomes about the product. It becomes about what what's the offering that you have. And service gets forgotten. And I think that in the time that we've worked with Clever, and obviously you know, just, just the chat that we've had, 
I'm finding that the more successful the business, the more focus it is on service. Then, and the product is really secondary. Like, because let's be honest, products are products, and you've got a hundred people selling the, the same thing, but it's how we sell it and how we service and how we provide the information and the communication to the end client. That's the difference. Yeah, well, I think um, I'll let I'll let Michael uh, strenuously object to the idea that all products are the same. <laughs> I, was, the, I was waiting for that. As the uh, the product manufacturer, we'll leave that for another podcast. <laughs> as the manufacturer and uh, importer wholesaler here at the table, um, <laughs> but look, I, I think there is a truth in what you say, and that um, perhaps I could phrase it this way so that we don't upset Michael. Um, oh, that's okay. I would I would probably come at it this way and say that. Among the Australian flooring retailers, there is finite choice. And when you are uh, you know, buying and selling product, there are a, a certain number of um, manufacturers, importers and wholesalers that you're likely to be dealing with. And as a result, unless you have very exclusive supply chain uh, negotiations in place, uh, then it's very likely you're selling against the same product in a different retailer every day of the year. Now, that won't always be true, but it'll, it, it'll represent a majority of the market. Uh, and certainly in the customer experience, they're going to see a lot of offerings that are very similar in different retailers. So I think that your point is fair on that basis. So I think yeah. that you know, if, if customers um, are choosing from among a, a very sound quality range, then, yeah, it's going to be that that sort of trust that's engendered by great service, that makes the difference. I think the other thing I'd like to think is that, and we certainly see this given our very long tenure, um, the the margin that is earned transacting with the public is X, but X is not worth much. Mm. So if you make a margin selling a product to the public uh, in the in the scheme of things that's a small margin you add those together and you have a temporary business but that's all it is the real value is x times five which is when that same customer's with you five times in 35 years um that the value of that referral the value of that repeat custom and in other words trading in your reputation and prior service that is what makes the business really valuable because a transactional value in business is, is going to average a normal profit. A normal profit is, is just enough profit that you don't attract too many more competitors and that you don't go ba- bankrupt. So that normal profit in the middle, it's not huge. In a competitive industry, it's never going to be huge. Where you really add value to your business is by having it come to you again and again and again. And that's born on the trust from quality products and from exceptional service absolutely and that's what um i guess our position's um, a bit different that we do rely on that repeat business being um, a wholesaler supplier uh, and it's something that at clever we work very hard on ensuring that our um, andersons and our other retailers do come back and you touched on it there matt that you know there is multiple products out in the market and um at clever we do a quality product um, at value pricing but at the same time our service and our values and ensuring that we're looking after we're training um, you know we look at stores like Anderson's as, as our own 
uh, their staff are like our own and we want to train them, we want to communicate, uh, we want to educate, um, we want to ensure that, that repeat business is coming back to not only Clever but then also an extension through Anderson's. Yeah, look, I, I think there's there's a, a nice example of partnership with Clever. We, we've we found Clever to be a, a really good um, uh, active partner with us. So some of our some of our suppliers will tend to be a little bit more prescriptive where they'll say this is what we have please buy it um, we find clever is is one of our uh, a pretty short list actually of of trusted partners who will come at the solution more from the perspective of what would what would help you let's get that for you what do your customers need let's get that for you and so even though you guys do participate in this category, it's a category that provides a good example, and that is the hybrid category. Um, the, the, I'm not from the flooring industry, so when I, I came to this industry four years ago, um, I had fresher eyes then than I do now. My eyes are probably more, I'm probably more uh, indoctrinated in this industry now, but four years ago, I looked at the hybrid category, and with fresh eyes, I was incredibly cynical about it because... It looked to me like an excuse for poor floor prep. Yep. So it wasn't necessarily designed that way. I don't know what the genesis of it was. Was it just an upgrade on laminate, or was it, or was it uh, designed for DIY, or was it? So I, I didn't know the the product genesis because I wasn't in the industry. But what I saw was some reps, not yours. I'm pleased to say. I saw reps saying you'll get more meters down every day because you don't have to prep the floor. <laughs> and, you know, I was new to Anderson's, but I wasn't new to country town service. It was one of the reasons they brought me into Anderson's was that I had a, um, an aligned view of what's important in the transaction with the public. And to me that was deeply offensive. Yep. I, I, I saw that and I thought, oh, now this might be a great category, but that's the wrong reason to sell it. So, and, and actually what we've seen is that it has turned out to be quite a good category. It's a strong performer for us, like it is for many of the retailers. Where I'd like to think the Andersons franchisees differentiate themselves in the customer conversation is by saying, well, you've come in asking about hybrid, good for you. Um, you know, can I ask why, why you're asking about that? Oh, well, it's the waterproof one. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, these vinyl planks are waterproof. What, what is it about the, uh, the hybrid product that appeals to you? And they say, oh, I saw it on the block. <laughs> <laughs> and so... It's great for uh, business, that block. Yeah, but I, I, I think this is, this is an interesting one because it, it brings about, well, what are we here to do? Are yeah. we here to help the customer or are we here to take their money? Yeah. And I think if you're here to help the customer, you may very well still sell them a hybrid product if it's the right thing for them. Um, but if you're just doing it to take their money, there is a country saying that, you know, you can shear a sheep all its life, but you can only skin it once. Yeah. And if, if you're not in it for the customer, if you're in it for you, that orientation is all wrong. So I'd like to think that we, we actually do sell quite a bit of hybrid, but I like to think that we do it from the point of view of, well, in your application, it's, it's a really good solution, first of all. Secondly, in order to do it, we will need to prep that floor properly. 
if it if indeed floor prep is required, which it, it very often is, as you know. Yes. Yeah, we spoke about it on the last um, podcast yeah. we did. And so I think if we come at it from that point of view, you can differentiate yourself uh, from a great many retailers immediately uh, because that's not how hybrid's been pushed. And I look, I feel the same about expansion joints in silicon. Yep. Um, but I think the important thing there is that if your decision-making is oriented around your customer, and it doesn't matter if you're a manufacturer, an importer, a wholesaler or a retailer, if your business is designed around the customer, then its long-term success is heightened. <laughs> it's, it's, you're giving yourself the best opportunity to succeed. Um, if your business is oriented around how do you make money in a transaction as fast as possible, well, you probably have a future in late-night infomercials or something, you know, because that's, yeah. that's a viable business model. It's just not a sustainable franchise. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were saying that, uh, so you've been with Anderson's for four years now. You didn't come from flooring. So you're the first person that we've had as a guest that hasn't bled flooring. Why choose flooring? Why get into this industry? What, and what do you bring? What do you bring to Anderson's? Yeah, well, some of my franchisees probably ask that question occasionally. I come from a, uh, an accounting and law background, so um, uh, that was my education. But my um, background as relates to franchising was very much in retail. And so I was from a retail background in a franchise, uh, string of franchise environments, um, battery world, uh, Quest Service Departments and Domino's Pizza. And while each of those are fundamentally different businesses, they're not fundamentally different models. Um, you know, you're, you're serving the public and you're buying and selling product or in the case of uh, Quest, you're leasing product. But if effectively, you're transacting for the sake of the customer. If you're doing so better than your competitors, then you will have growth and if you're doing so exceptionally well, then you'll have abnormal profit. And for a franchise to be sustainable in any of those environments, the underlying model itself has to be a two-margin business. So there has to be enough uh, margin in the transaction with the public that the franchisor can have a margin and the franchisee can make a sustainable profit. And if that stays in balance then you've got a really sustainable model that is symbiotic. Everyone grows, everyone wins together. Um, and I, I think that's what's proven to be the case with Andersons. It's one of the reasons that we've been around as long as we have and we continue to grow. Uh, it's also one of the reasons we have you know, incredibly high franchisee satisfaction compared to the franchise industry benchmarks. Um, now, on the flip side, if a franchise uh, transaction doesn't have two margins in it sustainably, then either the franchisors fat and happy and the franchisees are miserable, in which case you'll have terrible turnover and you won't have any good referees to sell more franchises. In this day and age, you'll probably get sued as well, is one of the cold hard realities. Uh, on the flip side of that, if the franchisees make all the money and the franchisor doesn't have enough margin, then they can't support their franchisees properly. And so eventually that starts to limit the potential of the group as well. So... Franchising for me is all about is the model suitable for franchising? Anderson's definitely is. And is the balance correct between the interests of franchisee, interests of franchisor? And finally, are they tightly aligned so that when one is winning, the other is winning? There's a very old sort of expression that, you know, a man can't have two masters. 
uh, in this day and age, that would be a person who can't have two masters. That's largely true. But as a franchise CEO, I, I very much do have two masters. I've got a, a master who is my shareholder body and I've got a master who is my franchisee. And the only way that can work is if helping your franchisee grow achieves your business goals. Luckily, uh, the symbiotic nature of franchising is such that that's exactly how it works when it's done properly. And so I think our, our history at Anderson's proves that we've got that balance right and that those uh, interests are tightly aligned. And as the CEO, a big part of my job is to make sure they stay tightly aligned, that everyone's sort of reminded and understanding what's important every day and how we grow and win together, uh, how we maintain a strong supply chain with excellent supply partners, be uncompromising on quality and you know have, have guarantees that differentiate us in the marketplace. In the last couple of years, um, and it's interesting um, hearing sort of that breakdown and um, about franchisees and franchisors and obviously the relationship with suppliers and um, it's probably due to the success of the growth that you've had. Um, so tell us a little bit about, I guess, um, you know, where Anderson's is currently and then the growth that you're looking to expand. Um, like you mentioned um, before, you know, now moving down, you know, heavily into New South Wales, uh, store in Adelaide. Um, sure. Well, look, there was there was a, a CEO uh, that took over from Jack, uh, who was Brian Cooper. Uh, Brian was at the helm of Andersons for over a decade, uh, did an outstanding job. And when I came along and Brian was uh, eyeing a store to buy, and he subsequently did buy and did tremendously well there, um, when I came along, I was very lucky. You know, I inherited a business that had a, a very, very sound foundation. And I, I would regard that really as sort of something of a launch pad. The Anderson's infrastructure was already there to support a lot more shops. And so, and it had proven its durability by, you know, sustaining itself uh, for so many decades. And so uh, it was a very, very good opportunity to take a business that was fundamentally sound and had really robust architecture to support growth and to apply growth. And so um, uh, every, every CEO, if you ask where we are today, I would say I'm in the same position as every CEO. We have a, a duty to grow. So um, capital goes where it's welcome, but it also goes where it's rewarded. And our shareholders invest in our business um, to see their, uh, their results grow no differently to a franchisee buys their own business to see their wealth grow. Um, there is a, an opportunity cost for any investor, whether they're a franchise business owner or whether they um, own and operate a, a sound studio or whether they are a manufacturer importer of good quality um, flooring product. You could have invested in something else. You could have purchased, um, well... A bank deposit's probably a bad example. Interest rates haven't been that high previously. Yeah. But you could have bought a stick of gold. You could have um, bought a house, real estate investment. You could have had your shares in the share market. Um, but instead, you took that exact amount of money and you applied it to buying shares in my business or in, in your own. So there was an opportunity cost to making that investment. And what that means is that if someone trusts you with their investment, 
and you're not growing it, they could be seeing that same investment grow elsewhere. Which means that you have an obligation to grow a business if you own it. If you're not growing it, you are doing a disservice to your investor. And so uh, my brief was very clear when I joined Anderson's was to take this very scalable business and put it on a, a growth footing in store count and same store sales growth uh, to evolve the retail model, drawing on the retail background that I've had and um, hopefully to come at the industry with fresh eyes in an industry that uh, has been reasonably static for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, in our retail format in particular, I think uh, the flooring industry in Australia, uh, Anderson's included, is probably guilty of still looking and feeling for the customer a bit like it's the 1970s yeah. where you'll walk into a store, there's going to be some swatches of carpet, there's going to be some um, uh, some planks of this and that, some samples. Uh, you're going to talk to a salesperson, that salesperson's going to try to arrange a measure and quote, they're going to quote you, you'll compare quotes, you'll make a decision, it'll get installed at some point. This is the same that it was in 1970. Yeah. Like there really <coughs> isn't any innovation in that. And so I do think there's an industry here with the opportunity to innovate uh, in our retailing, in our customer service experience and increasingly with the shifting media landscape that means customers come to us via a different travel path to what they traditionally did. Yeah. So why Andersons? What, why? For me? Yeah. Uh, well, I was, I was uh, uh, invited to come and join Andersons, which was, uh, it was a very pleasant thing to be headhunted. But um, uh, for me, I saw a really tight alignment. Um, I'm not from big cities myself. It's not my background. Um, I saw here an organisation with country town values that was scalable with a culture that I really, really liked. Uh, so in a nutshell, um, uh, this was not a pretentious organisation. This was an organisation that had uh, these really deep country roots. The culture we were talking about earlier, a very long franchise tenure, you know, unbelievably long franchise tenure, uh, good franchise profitability and a, a balanced franchise model. So I, I saw a lot to like here. Um, I'm pleased to say four years later I still see plenty to like and I, I think if I, if I keep doing the right thing by my shareholders and by my franchisees, hopefully I'll... Um, uh, I'll spend a lot more of my career in this role. And I guess, why Andersons for your customers? Well, um, you know, that's a really important question. I think if we if we look at franchising or retailing, is probably the better way to say this, if we look at retailing flooring in a landscape that hasn't changed much, in, in historical terms, the owner-operator of a given business, whether they're an independent or part of a chain, has probably been what makes the difference in that individual store. So a strong operator has tended to have high returns and a a weaker operator has tended to have lower returns. And so for the customer, without brand being a consideration, the operator themselves has been key. Even in franchises today, that's still very much true. You'll have, um, across any franchise community in any of the chains, I'm sure, uh, you'll have some that underperform, you'll have some that are genuine high flyers, and then you'll have the bulk in the middle. And if you're an excellent model with really good support, that middle is always rising to emulate and be more like the excellent operators among you. 
I think if you are a customer, your exposure to the best practices is the first and foremost thing. So if, if someone has a fantastic store with a great range and really good service, those fundamentals will, there'll be very little that is more important than that. Yep. Um, but I think it is incredibly important to differentiate. So at Anderson's, we differentiate on a number of different channels. Uh, one of the key ones for us is our 100-day peace of mind guarantee. Uh, so it is the only one of its kind anywhere in the industry. Um, I'm, it's terribly expensive, and I'm sure that plenty of our uh, plenty of our competitors wonder how on earth we do it. But we do it because we believe in it. We we think that if the customer's not happy, well, we shouldn't be either. Yep. And so the fact that the check cleared doesn't mean the transaction's over. Uh, at Anderson's, once the floor is installed, if the customer changes their mind in the next hundred days, we'll replace it free of charge. Yeah, wow. And that's um, uh, even with Clever Choice product. So, uh, you know, that's, that's a very abnormal uh, offer in the market. Um, it used to be a 30-day guarantee and it was only on carpet. Yep. Um, we asked ourselves the hard question a few years ago about, well, what really matters to us? And if customer satisfaction is that important, why wouldn't we back everything we sell? And so we do. Um, that's a... That's a massive undertaking and it's very important to us. It's part of our brand now. It's used extensively in our branding. Uh, we do think it's unassailable. We, th we think nobody can touch that and good luck to them if they want to try because it'll be good for the customer. Yes. Um, the other one that we differentiate with uh, is probably a less visible thing, but it's probably something that appeals to a certain customer more than others. If you take the, the theory that the world is divided into two groups. People who are increasingly concerned about the environment and people who don't much care. I think you could equally assume there's no third group of people who actively hate the environment. So there's probably only the two groups. There's probably a yep. group who's passionate and a group who's a huh, bit of a shrug. Yep. I think you could also assume the group who's passionate is growing. I think that it's growing particularly in the youth and the elderly, interestingly enough. I think in the, uh, the baby boomers uh, have demonstrated an increasing appetite to be concerned about the world they leave for the next generations. But I think in the, uh, really anyone under 40 these days uh, has got pretty strong opinions about the environment. In the flooring industry, they haven't typically been our consumer. Um, you know, people in the flooring industry as retail consumers are generally homeowners who are buying, renovating, flipping, what have you. So they've achieved a certain station in life where ownership of property is in their, in their life. And so they don't tend to be 19-year-olds, they tend to be older. But what we will see is that this younger cohort of very environmentally-minded consumers uh, will already be dominating other retail sectors that are more youth-driven. And gradually they will all become property owners or they'll participate in the property market to some extent. And then as they do, they'll bring their values with them. Mm. At Anderson's, every time we win a job, we sponsor a tree planting. We started doing this in October in 2020. And we did it not really because there was um, pressure on the industry to do something. We did it because we believe in it. We did it because we think, well, you know, we have a carbon footprint like any, any retailer with the supply chain. Um, our products aren't that easy to recycle, although there's some promising uh, 
some promising initiatives underway at the moment. But this this is something that matters to us because if, if we think about country town values, well, looking after the land matters. Climate change matters. If you're a farmer, a drought matters or a flood really matters. Yeah. And, you know, we, we don't have to have long memories to to know just how profound those impacts are on rural communities or coastal capitals. So for us to commence of our own initiative, an environmental um, program, uh, that's completely, I'm very proud to say, we have no contractual right to demand this of our franchisees and we have 100% participation from our franchisees voluntarily, uh, which is, I'm extraordinarily proud of that. Uh, but to date, we've sponsored 225,000 tree plantings in 59 countries. There's 11 plantations in Australia. Um, and we, we run that ourselves. I do, I do the sponsorships personally. Uh, so I, I personally book the, the tree plantings on a, on a, a site called Plant for the Planet. Um, now, we get gazumped because we're not, we're not huge. You know, Anderson's only 55 stores. Um, uh, Officeworks did a million trees last year. <laughs> and uh, I sit in the ARA Council, the Australian Retailers Association Council, with Sarah Hunter, who's a fantastic retailer, uh, runs the Officeworks organisation. And I heard her say that she, you know, they did a million trees and it was like a rounding error for them. Uh, but I'm really proud that we've done 225,000 trees. And so I, I think that you can, you can be uh, a contributor to the conversation, but you can also be actually an active part of a solution to a problem. Yep. Uh, I think our Project Green is a really nice little differentiator. It probably doesn't appeal to everybody, but it doesn't upset anyone either. There's no third category. And it's, you know, we're, we're proud to contribute. Um, I remember when Sid told us you were doing that and, you know, I was one of the first ones to put my hand up because I also believe in leaving our planet, you know, in a better place than we came into it. Um, yeah. And if we can do our small part to contribute to that and, um, yeah, you should be very proud of your achievements. I was, I was looking at the numbers uh, the other night and it, it is amazing then to scale it against an organisation like Officeworks um, you know that that is actually amazing for you. Well, don't get me wrong. I think Sarah's initiative is phenomenal. Yeah, and I hope they keep doing doing it and do do and many more. A lot of them. people getting on board. Uh, yeah, and look, I, I think that tree planting is a lane we've chosen. Uh, I don't think it is a carbon strategy. It didn't begin that way. Yep. Uh, but I I think that all organisations will increasingly be adopting carbon strategies, which are designed to either offset or you know, to some extent, neutralise their carbon footprint. Um, in retail, we trade during the day. We air condition or heat our stores during the day. The sun's in the sky during the day. So rooftop solar for retail stores is probably the lowest hanging fruit that we have as an organisation and as an industry. Um, I'd expect that where that was a pretty unusual conversation with a landlord five years ago, I'd say it's probably really mundane now. I think, I think landlords pretty, probably expect to be asked um now of course there's some leasehold concern around that that you know the landlord owns the roof and if you punch holes in the roof and it leaks it's the landlord's problem so you probably need to be having really forthright conversations about about who'll be responsible for this or that i think as long as you understand who you who you're speaking with and uh relate to them i think there's very very little resistance from landlords in my experience to having rooftop solar installed um it's good for the planet it's good for your power bills. To me, that sort of thing's a no-brainer. Yeah. 
I think on uh, transition to electric vehicles is going to be interesting. I think one of the other ones that we will see uh, is a more active and scientific approach to freight where um, partnerships like we have with you guys at Clever Choice um, will increasingly develop where uh, different parts of a supply chain will come together to solve for the problem of shipping air. Yep. Uh, you know, if, you're, if your truck isn't full or if your container isn't full, you're, you're shipping air to some extent, uh, I think that supply chains will become more integrated and sophisticated to try to solve for that problem so that the carbon footprint associated with moving that, that box of goods around is diminished. And so there's, there's three examples there from trees to freight where I think this will be an increasing topic of conversation. Yep. Um, the other one is recycling. You know, I think um, uh, our whole industry has had a reasonably poor track record of giving life to a product after its life, after its sold life. Um, a part of that is that it's not easy to, to uninstall this stuff yep. uh, in a lot of cases, particularly a hard set product is, is generally got to be ripped up with a, a stripper. Um, and some of the other product that is pulled up isn't really suitable for a lot of other second life applications in its present state. Um, I know the carpet industry has been struggling with this and been really laterally minded around how they might be able to try and find a second life. Everything from weed matting to um, uh, erosion mitigation uh, devices. Uh, there's moves afoot to try to repurpose uh, stripped up PVCs and vinyls uh, into second life products. Uh, but they do face some stability challenges there, contaminant challenges there, uh, and whether the process itself actually has a bigger carbon footprint than, than the original process. Yeah. So I don't know where this conversation lands. All I know is it's going to continue and it's going to advance. Uh, it could be that products are, are being repurposed into road base or it could be that products are repurposed into a totally different category. And whichever that is, wherever, that, wherever it does land, it's a destination worth pursuing. And I think Anderson stands ready to be part of that conversation. Absolutely. Uh, mate, a couple a couple questions we've asked, well, one of the main questions we've asked of all our guests is about the importance of, of, of the trades, the layers in the industry and the dearth of apprentices that are coming into the flooring industry. What's your view on that, mate? And are Anderson's doing anything to, to help, I guess, explore options for apprentices within the industry? Yeah, look, I think this is a really interesting challenge because, you know, to some to some extent, your labour resources are are like a balance sheet item. It's a cliche in business, but it's it's true that your people are your greatest asset. So, if we think about that in terms of someone who's a franchisee or a store manager for stores that have them, or for a salesperson in a store even an administration person in a store or a warehouse uh, supervisor, those people are assets of the business that you, you live and die by and that you are devastated if you lose one. And, and so that's, that's the traditional business paradigm is that you have invested their energy and training and coaching, mentoring, culture and all these other things to try to have that advantage that you've got the best team. Installers are very much the same, but because the shortage is so acute, there's been effort by whole of industry to try to solve this. 
which is unusual because the whole of industry is not interested in getting me another salesperson. Mm. So the, the installers have sort of been moved out into a separate category because of this the acute problem that the industry faces. Um, I've personally seen really noble efforts from groups like the FCIA, uh, that Anderson's, I will say, was a part of that organisation. We, we have withdrawn from that organisation. Um, but I, I didn't withdraw from that organisation because the effort wasn't noble. The effort's absolutely noble. It's, the, it's a good effort and it's, it's, it's worth a try. Um, what, I, what I've preferred to focus on is the things over which we have the most control. And so we generated our own internal apprenticeship drive to try to bring on the next generation of installers. Uh, across 50 shops, as we then were, we managed to put on 70 apprentices in the first 14 months. And our, our hope is that if we're able to do that and do it again and again and again each year, that roughly one apprentice per store per year on a sustained basis positions you eventually as a uh, as the, the sort of the, the retail organisation that has labour fully trained and available. Today, very few retailers in Australia have installation labour available in abundance at high skill. Yep. Um, if they did, the prices would be lower. The... Um, the balance would be uh, uh, better and there'd probably be a supply chain of installers coming through behind them. Today, the installer workforce is a little bit differently incentivized because if I'm an ageing installer and my body's starting to wake and I'm thinking I might hang up my spurs soon, I don't have a strong incentive to train someone else because I'm yielding monopoly rates. You know, I can charge whatever I like really if I put on a third person, a second person, uh, well, it probably eats into my margin. Why would I do that? And I'm tired anyway and training's hard and why bother? So I think what we need to do is to come at that problem uh, more deliberately. We need to be more active as retailers and uh, whether it's through industry associations like the FCIA or whether it's through um, uh, in-house programs, uh, I believe Newfern is... Uh, Another example of, of an in-house uh, emphasis on uh, growing your talent. Uh, I think they're all worth a try, uh, but I think that the ones that I expect to be the most successful are the ones where the retailers themselves actually take the bull by the horns, hire for the apprentices, and uh, that's not easy, but they you've got to make the effort. Yeah, And then you... Um, you do everything you can to persuade your installer workforce to help you train them. Um, that sounds easier when you say it than it is in the real world, of course. It's really hard. And I think the other thing is that um, these, aren't, these aren't one single term that describe an industry anymore. Uh, 50 years ago, an installer would do sheet vinyl and carpet. Yeah. Uh, today, an installer in all likelihood is a specialist. So they may very well you know, do carpet or they may very well do vinyl plank or they may very well do... Uh, commercial two-meter vinyls with covings and and um, uh, and corners. If if that's your specialty, and someone asks you to to do a floating floor in laminate, in this day and age, you probably just say no. Yeah. So 
uh, I don't think we're, I think it's, we have to have the sheer numbers of new apprentices and develop that pipeline and develop that skill set. But I think actually the problem's more acute than that because you've got to develop enough depth in each channel to sell all categories. And I would even add the secondary skilled areas here, which are not full trade qualified, um, but are nonetheless fundamental to a profitable business. And they would be floor preparation, which may or may not be a fully qualified tradesperson. And additionally, um, you know, on-site labourers, uh, additionally, windows installers or any other products that you happen to sell as a retailer. Yeah, um, I actually had a meeting. My my son, both my sons are um, get going through. One of them is now qualified as a qualified electrician and the other one's just starting. Um, his first year got signed up and I actually had a meeting with um, the Australian... Um, industry um college uh out at rabina yesterday good one um so we're also you know trying to meet with organizations um when met with tafe um so as a supplier even though we're not directly involved with installation uh something that clever we're very passionate about of trying to uh, encourage pathways uh for younger kids and you know the younger generation to come through because Especially, like you sort of said, that there's a lot of specialty installers out there. And when we do a lot of the regional areas where there is only one or two installers, it sort of can pigeonhole the store to what offerings they can offer the client. So it actually also reduces the choice, I guess, in product mix in certain areas. because And, and it's not just regional. Actually, some um, city stores also have this problem where you know, they can't get floating floor installers or they can't get vinyl installers because a lot of the stallers are now specialty in, in their fields that, um, you know, for us as a supplier and, you know, I believe what we try and do at Clever is become more of an educator as well, um, you know, helping facilitate um, those type of pathways is very important to us as well. And it's something that, you know, I've spoken to Jay and a lot of your team there and, you know, trying to get more involved and a better understanding of how we can assist there. So it's good to see Andersons are taking that internal um, opportunity to really grow that within within your stores. Yeah, and look, I, I don't um, I don't imagine it will be easy to sustain the high levels of recruitment we've achieved. But um, like anything, if it's not a priority in your business, you're you're definitely not going to achieve it. So we, I think, as an industry and certainly inside the Andersons business. Uh, it is a very high um, strategic imperative of ours, uh, together with our other um, strategic objectives, which you know are really diverse. So there'll be things around technologies, there'll be things around uh, our store image, uh, things around our design focus. Um, but apprentices is definitely one of our pillars. Wow, the new image that you guys are um, producing in some of your Anderson stores are absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, look, I, I'm really proud of the, the new store image that we've rolled out. Um, it's an image we're internally calling Image 25. The objective is that we'll have all of our stores, new and old, over to the new image by 2025. Um, it's the it's only the, the second image that we've rolled in the last 15 years. So it is it has been a while. And I think our old stores actually held up pretty well. They, the, the image of those stores was pretty good. But I think it was time to take a fresh approach to the industry. Um, there is no doubt that the, the new Image 25 stores are very fresh. I think anyone who visits those stores, I know your reps are, are regular visitors to our stores. Um, 
But anyone from inside the industry that does visit those stores generally has the same reaction, that these are the best-looking stores in the industry. I think the other thing that is arguably more important, no offence, is what the customer thinks. Mm. Uh, and we, we're getting a very warm response from the customer. Um, the intention is not just to make this a more contemporary uh, in-store retail experience. It's also to make the... Um, uh, it's to differentiate ourselves from that 1970s style where it's a rack'em, stack'em retail environment that's going to follow the same travel path that always did. Today, the customer comes to us by a really different travel path. So if we look back um, even 10 years, uh, customers weren't being influenced by Instagram or Pinterest around their interior design choices. Uh, They were probably finding themselves first and foremost having a need to participate in our industry, so they need flooring for some reason. If they happened to have us top of mind, either through past experience or referral or by traditional media like free-to-air TV uh, or letterbox distribution, which was still very widespread 10 years ago, uh, then that, that promotional trigger might have been enough to get them to come to a store. If they came to a store, they probably went to two or three. If they uh, felt comfort with a product or a salesperson, they probably booked a measure. And if they asked for the sale courteously and with a good price, then they probably got the deal. So the whole transaction was really linear. It was sort of, um, if you picture a line, it was moving from one spot on the line to the next spot on the line to the next spot on the line. And it had a certain inevitability to it. As long as the customer didn't pull out of the decision to purchase, they were sort of in that, they were moving along that line in a linear manner. Today, uh, Anderson's, like all of our industry, and I would suggest like nearly all all of retail, has a customer that comes to us in a really different way. Their initial interest in our business, in our categories, may not be triggered by need. It might be triggered by curiosity, education, engagement with social media, design magazines, TV shows. Um, There's an element of edutainment, which is a a term the Yanks are fond of, where there's something educational and a bit entertaining, (laughs) like a podcast perhaps. (laughs) It might also be um, stimulated by your social environment. So it might be just through your connections, you know, you you saw someone else's bacon and eggs and you thought, that looks pretty good, I, I'll, I'll go to that cafe. Uh, I don't personally get influenced by that, but I'm told some people do, or else they wouldn't keep taking photos of their bloody meals. <laughs> Isn't that a nightmare? I don't get it, but it, it's, it's the tide against which you can't swim. It's, so you're right. the modern retail consumer is, is being influenced by these other things. If we look at the flooring industry more specifically that pathway to purchase is really non-linear now. Mm. Um, there is a, an inspiration stage. There's a design stage, an assessment stage, a, an education stage. Um, you know, we, we have customers that walk into stores using industry jargon. And it's a bit discombobulating, you know. We're, that's our talk. That's, that's this podcast type of talk. Yeah. You know, wear layers and, and fibres or, or um, you know, substrates. And, and you hear them using this terminology and think, wow, where did this come from? This person's not from the flooring industry. What it is is they've been watching YouTube or they've been searching up in Pinterest or in Instagram or Facebook or they've or Google News. You know, there's been any number of different touch points that have led in a very non-linear way to the moment when they begin to seriously consider their alternatives. Mm, they're a lot more educated. They are. And so from that point on, then, okay, there's an assessment 
process between you and your rivals or anyone else that might be able to meet the need. But again, that's not linear either because of the influences that led them there being non-linear. Now the comparison isn't either. So they're now assessing your social media. Mm. They're much more inclined these days to look at your reviews than ever before. Because while advertising tells you what I want you to think about me, my reviews tell you what you should really think about me. 100%. Yep. There's a credibility that under underlines that uh, particular touch point. And so the assessment between different retailers is now nonlinear as well. And if you, if you get through that whole minefield, there's probably a sale to be had. And it's probably a customer who's actually potentially really convinced themselves about you. So actually there's a slightly different endpoint for the customer to the old process as well. Well, when, when the customer is beginning to behave differently in their pathway to purchase, a retailer needs to sort of not just recognise that, but they need to behave differently too. And so whether it's giving them tools like visualisation aids that help them when they're exploring, or whether it's having a more design-centric focus during the in-store experience, or whether it's... Um, just courteously asking for a review at the end of the whole process. I think the retailer of the future will optimise their business if they're engaging all over that spectrum instead of just sticking to their original knitting, yep. um, you know, which could or could not include uh, racking up samples uh, from anyone that walks in the door, uh, having a, a pushy salesman and, um, you know, taking a deposit. I think that's... That's a very narrow view of our industry, and I think it's one that probably does our industry some harm. Yeah, it definitely the landscape's changing. It's something that you know we've just spoken this year about, especially with the way our business looks. Um, and it's a good perspective you put on it there, which um, yeah, really opens your eyes to that whole experience. It's not linear, um, and there's so many avenues, and I think you've got to be at least focused on attempting to tick all those boxes. Um, I think so. I really do think so. And I think, um, you know, that has its own risks. If you, uh, if you give me a second, I'll, I had a boss once and it was my first day on the job, but I was in a job as a general manager. I asked to see the P&L. It seemed to me like a really rational place to start. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, oh, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. I said, well... What do you want me to do then? I mean, uh, I'm, where do I start? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's. And he said, "I oh, know there's a hundred things I want to teach you." I said, "Okay, great. Well, teach me a hundred things then." He said, "Pass me that cup of pencils on the table." And he did. He passed me this cup of pencils. Oh, I passed it to him, and he said, "Here, catch this." And he threw one to me, and I caught it. And then he said, "Now catch this," and he threw them all to me, and I dropped all of them. And he'd made his point. I think the retailer tries to be everything all at once. <laughs> runs the risk of dropping all the pencils. Yep. And on my worst days, that's the CEO I am. On my worst days, I'm the CEO that sees every shiny possibility and now there's a brand new project for a team that's already overwhelmed. Yeah. For, I think, an excellent CEO, and I hope I am on my very rare days, the discipline is around trying to apply your resources to the things that are the most important to the customer and will deliver the best long-term sustainable outcome. So... Um, yeah, make no mistake, it is a tricky thing in modern retail to try to meet the customer where they are because it's changing and 
uh, it means that dinosaurs like me need to learn about social media. We need to learn how to engage in live streaming. Estee Lauder did 40% of their sales last year in live streaming. That's an infomercial on your mobile phone. Wow. Our industry doesn't have live streaming. Clever choice might after this podcast, but um, this podcast is an example. Podcasts weren't a thing five years ago. They really are now. Mm. Um, I think all of these things are changing. So we, we will struggle to adapt and change just like everyone will. The, the, the sort of measure of our success will be whether we manage to stay focused while we do it or if we just become scatterbrained by the, the sort of dearth of opportunity. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it is a really tricky time. And I think, um, you know, you sort of touched on it and I guess being, being the GM of Clever Choice, uh, you just run another list um, of a project for me to add on and Matt's <laughs> looking at me like, oh no, what are we doing now? Yeah. But, it, but it is, it's, it's trying to balance uh, all those things. As we said, it's not linear. It's not a simple step anymore. There is so many different things that we need to focus on for us to have a successful business. And I think that is the key, is being able to prioritise, um, not forget about all those things because they are all equally important, but not all important at the same time. And I think, you know, being able to have a successful business is having a good leader that can prioritise, um, you know, what is important now and then what's important in the future and then how you obviously build around that. Uh, it's a lot of strategy we have in here you know, we were in here early this morning just talking with Chris and yeah. that's what actually ha half an hour of that conversation was about is here's the wish list. <clears throat> How do we timeline that? You know, and then building it in with your revenue and, you know, every, and then your people, um, you know, which is another important part, which obviously you've touched on there, having the right people. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's challenging. It's, it's what excites me. Uh, it's what excites Clever it is how fast it is moving. And I think if you can keep up with it, um, and it is a beast, it's, you know, <clears throat> from when I started business to where it is now, like I remember when we started flooring, we had 12 SKUs and we were running our business on 12 SKUs. I think we're over 1,500 wow. SKUs. Um, you do have quite a big range of trims, you know, that's on you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 1,350 <laughs> of those are trims. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think that's what it comes down Like when you said about choice and, you know, it's not just about having the 12 SKUs of flooring. It's all the bits and pieces that go with it and, you know, everything from the floor levelling to the floor to all your scotias to your finishing trims. And, you know, I think when organisations and retail stores and suppliers can supply the whole flooring package from start to finish... Um, you know, that's why it's a reason for one of our success. And I believe it's a reason for Anderson's success is, um, you know, I, I know from experience going into the stores, they do go through that process. And, um, you know, I was in your store one the other day, they were doing training on floor levelling. Um, so, you know, for the stores and for their members um, to be experienced in every aspect. And I guess is where we touched on DIY the other day as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, yes, DIY, anyone can clip the floors together, right? That's not the hard bit. The hard bit is all the preparation. Um, and the key to any good job is all in the preparation. The, prep the preparation, most of the times, actually takes longer 
than the actual laying of the floors. Uh, and then, you know, the post installation of finishing it all off and how to then clean and maintain. And, you know, it's a process. And as you said, to give that 100-day guarantee, it extends into another 100 days past where most people think, oh, it's over, I've got my money. Uh, the fact that Andersons are then continuing and offering that extra hundred days is, um, you know, the the true length of I guess what that customer experience is. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, you don't you don't necessarily. Uh, I don't think you necessarily own your customer. I think you you are uh, you know borrowing them on their goodwill. <laughs> so. Um, I think even when you win the job, you still don't really own that customer. You 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 only have the right to that customer as so long as you deserve them. Correct. And you know, trims are actually a really good example. But um, uh, I, I think there's a, a an interesting conversation in floating floors around the use of silicon. Um, I'm not a big fan, and it's not because silicon isn't a valid building product. It's a little bit like floor prep for hybrid. I've always been a bit concerned with the idea that you'd sell hybrid because you don't have to do floor prep. Well, what, what, what anyone with pride in the industry would know is that's not, that's not true, but it actually does happen. Yeah, it's dangerous. And so I think silicon to me is a little bit the same. I think if uh, the best floor is probably able to move and float beneath a skirt, and so removing the skirts or undercutting the skirts is probably the, the prideful way to do installs. Yep. For a floating floor, expansion joints probably also are uh, uh, something we're seeing less of now, and it seems as though that's a direction coming from the manufacturers. I I don't like the idea that we would uh, justify a shortcut that may not be good for the customer. Now, of course, in the right application, if an expansion joint's not necessary, well, let's not put one in. They're ugly. Yeah, they don't look as nice as a as a, a straight flat floor, um, but let's not take the shortcut and hope for the best. Correct. And I think that hundred day peace of mind guarantee is not actually an installation guarantee. We have those as well. Those, those uh, manufacturers guarantees also. Yep. But the whole industry has those. Um, they're embodied either in law or policy, and they're they're often manufacturer driven or they're driven by the organisations. Um, the hundred day peace of mind is more about the customer being happy. Well, if that's our orientation, then we don't want the floor to groan. We don't want it to peak. We don't want it to reveal at the edges. Uh, if there's silicon has been used, we don't want it to be a centimetre wide because yeah. the boards weren't cut properly. Um, so I think if, if you begin with that position of having uh, the transaction that goes beyond the sale, then hopefully it puts us in the right um, mindset at moments of choice about quality. Yep. So if we if we're going to do a cut the corners job on this, okay, well we're skinning the sheep, not shearing the sheep, aren't we? We're, we're as much as saying we don't care about that customer, we'll throw them to the warranty gods uh, from the manufacturer if anything goes wrong, and just hope nothing does. And if it does, we've priced it in. Yeah. Well, that's to me that's sort of cheating on the customer, and that that's not a sustainable thing. It's not a country town value. And it, if we did that, we wouldn't be here for 50 years. I think you touched on a key point is it's got to perform. Absolutely. And every step in our, our installation and maintenance guide is over 60 points long. 
uh, clicking the floors together is one point of that. Um, so I believe that the whole process has got to be followed, achieved. And if you do that right, and you, know, you said, you know, some of the expansion joints are ugly, but there are performance reasons why, you know, concrete slabs in your driveway have expansion joints. Roads have expansion, you know, concrete has expansion joints. Tiles, every flooring has them. And they're not there to make the floor look ugly. They're there so it can perform. Yeah, And of they're course, there to prevent problems. You know, I, I say ugly to save time in a short podcast, but... But clever, obviously. Cl- clever producers, nice, good-looking trims. Oh, beautiful trims to avoid wow. them from being ugly. <laughs> wow! <laughs> but know? I think I think there are. Wow. I think there. It's it's not unfair to say that that um, uh, a cheap trim can really uh, ruin a good job. Mm. Um, oh, I'll probably upset a supplier here, but there's a particular plastic trim that's often used in cheap carpet jobs that I just think is offensive. I just I see it and I just think, oh, what have you done? Like that's just so nasty. Yeah. And now, of course, they've, they, they, they've either given that to the customer, assuming the customer wants cheap, or the customer has outright told them they want cheap. And sure, there'll be, there'll be horses for courses times where you just have to use that low-cost product because it's, you're cutting the cost to fit because there's a budget on the job or it's a, for a rental property and they don't care or whatever it may be. But, you know, if our default assumption is quality, then we make the decision right when there is a choice, yep. and I think that's that's doing the right thing by the customer. If you're making the decision uh, for profit or for uh, ease because you've got a roll of this rubbish out the back, that's doing the wrong thing by the customer. So these are only fine lines, but actually there's a really different mindset at play in both cases. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I quite like cork expansions if you have to have one. Mm. But um, uh, I quite like cork as a category, but uh, you don't have to work on your range there. I don't think you guys are... You're not pushing a lot of cork. No, not not as yet. Um, <laughs> I have to get over to Portugal and get some of that nice Portugal cork. But uh, I guess, like you know, we like to say, make a clever choice. Um, By all means. So yeah, it it it's really it's been you know really really great um, ha- having you on because really going through the whole the whole process of um, you know what what Andersons delivers who Andersons is um, and seeing that um, you're pushing and promoting um, good practice um, environmental change um, innovation um, you know it's really a delight for us to be a part of that experience and that journey and um, you know we we thoroughly enjoy every day. Uh, I know our whole team uh, loves being involved with all your members, and I mean uh, Austin spent a lot of time down at your new newest Gladesville store. And um, I said to him the other day, I said, um, "Are you um, on the payroll down there? You seem to be <laughs> in the Anderson store." And he's really created a good connection with your member, and to the point that you know he's become good mates um, already with the staff down there. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the commitment I guess we have to all our retailers that we deal with is we want to be an extension of, um, I guess, your business and we enjoy doing it. Yeah, well, look, I, I think um, you've picked a really good example there in our new Gladesfield store in Sydney. Um, you know, we're in Sydney for the first time. It's our first time participating in that big metro market. Sydney's got some unique challenges mm. um, as a market. Um, we've got a franchisee there that's not from the industry. So he's new to this industry. 
um, exceptional retail background and very strong franchising background, he's going to be fine. Yeah. And applying the Anderson's model, he's going to be very, very successful, I believe. Um, but I thought what was very telling was that when I visited that store, I've been there a couple of times now, uh, when I visited that store, both times I've seen Austin in the store. <laughs> and the second time he was on his hands and knees um, uh, applying a trim around a, a funny post in the shop that's just a function of the fit-out yep. uh, to make sure that the clever product that was on the display floor there looked as good as it possibly could. Uh, it's a real bugbear for me that in this industry that we, we often see um, the floors in flooring stores that look terrible. Oh. It's like going past a sign writer who's got shitty signage. Uh, there's nothing worse. And so uh, to see to see that he was taking the pride around that trim, I, that, that meant a lot to me. I, I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I want to see more of. Um, I think uh, the, the clever reps are pretty welcome wherever they go. Uh, like all reps, it's always appreciated if you make appointments before you arrive, but I think the clever guys do a good job of that. Yep. And I think um, you've fattened a few of us up. Some of you arrive with donuts or cookies, and I think that's just <laughs> knowing your audience. Good for you. Yep. Look, I guess we've taken a considerable amount of your time this morning, mate, and we've appreciated it. But just one, one final question, I think, to wrap up. What's next for Andersons? Well, I think the, the long-term uh, view of the flooring industry is one that's going to be a little bit imbalanced. So if you look at demand in the long term for flooring, its um, best driver is population. Um, every human wakes up in the morning, puts their feet on a floor. They walk on floors all day. And so more humans means more floors. That's true of the new market as well as the replacement market. So Australia's population forecasts are up. We, we don't have a diminishing population here. We have a, a growing population. But all of the population forecasts for Australia are, are for us to see significant population growth. So I think that 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 alone is is a denominator that you can't ignore if you're looking at this industry. It means this industry will be resilient to recession and boom. That we might ride the boom a little, we might have recessions that that take demand down a notch, but in the long term that line is up. So that gives me the confidence to say that we can bank on growth as underlying as an underlying sort of market force. If we continue to differentiate, there's a great deal of um, uh, territory in Australia that we believe needs to be shaded in on the map for Andersons. Um, we've done that in the last few years uh, with entry into southern New South Wales, Sydney Metro, um, into the Adelaide market, into the ACT. Uh, I think that we'll continue to be opportunistic about our growth. So we, we would expect to continue to shade in the map in New South Wales. We'd expect to, to begin uh, doing the same in the Victorian market. And whether that's in Melbourne Metro or whether it's in the regions uh, is probably less important to us. We believe our model translates very well in both cases. Um, we're, we're terribly open-minded about Western Australia and um, uh, Tasmania, we have a, a superb prospect there as well. So... Um, our view is that Andersons will become uh, the, the premier Australian flooring uh, retail organisation, that our franchise is sustainable, that we have no reason not to do that. Where we'll see the imbalance is in the installer workforce mm. and if Andersons executes on our strategic plan, uh, it'll see us having the strongest workforce of installers in Australia to meet that demand. Um, if the industry does too, 
then we'll have a level playing field. And if the industry doesn't too, then Andersons will have an unfair advantage that we caused to happen. Amazing. That's a really good place to finish, mate. I appreciate the time spending with us on the underlay. And I guess the best place to find Andersons is on the web, andersons.com.au. That's right. A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N-S. That's right. That is right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Thanks very much for okay. having me today, yeah. gents. Thank you, Rowan Hodge. See, yeah, Rowan Hodge, CEO of Andersons Flooring. It's a pleasure having you in the uh, panic room this morning with less panic than we anticipated. No panic. Thank you very much, Jensen. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Till next time. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Underlay. If you want to hear more, follow us on all good podcast platforms.